Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and today I'm very happy to welcome uh, a very special guest to our podcast. Professor Stephen Walt is the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at the University of Harvard. He previously taught at Princeton and the University of Chicago. He is not, however, just an academic who lives in ivory towers. He's very much part of the public conversation. He's a frequent blogger. He has written uh, at least one very controversial book, The Israel Lobby, Um, and uh, he is here in London to talk about the future of Europe, a subject on which he has also given evidence, I think, to to US Congress. So, um, Professor Walt, you give a pretty bleak account of uh, the future of Europe in your evidence to to Congress Mm. and talked about um, five forces that are threatening to to rip the European Union apart, the overexpansion, the collapse of the Soviet Empire, the Euro crisis, deteriorating regional environment and the persistence of nationalism. If you were trying to rank those threats in order of importance, which do you think is the most most, uh, worrying for Europe's future? I, I am not going to rank uh, all five, but I'll say that the two that I think trouble me the most or that are the most concerned. I mean, the, the persistence of nationalism, I think, has been true all along, that uh, the European Union did not, in fact, uh, accomplish the goal of subsuming or transcending nationalism to the extent that its creators might have wanted. But the two that I think are most uh, evident now are, first of all, the consequences of overexpansion and the extraordinary heterogeneity in Europe now, that the, these countries are really quite different in size and per capita income and nature of their economies, and in particular, and I didn't really realize this until recently, in Western Europe, the parts that have been part of the EU for a long time, in a sense, uh, the European experience post-World War II has all been about trying to sort of tame nationalism and subsume it or transcend it within this larger European structure. For the more recent members in Eastern Europe, in a sense, the post-war experience, and in particular the post-Cold War experience, is about the reassertion of national independence once the Warsaw Pact had collapsed. And we see this, of course, in the second thing that worries me the most, which is the implications of the regional turbulence, what's happening around Europe's periphery, and most obviously in the refugee crisis, where the Western European response and the Eastern European response have been, for the most part, diametrically opposed and adding further to the strains of governance. This is a case, for example, where the EU could finally reach an agreement of sorts on a plan, but only by abandoning its normal consensus practices and basically imposing a solution on some of the members in the East that were very opposed to it. Do so, you, overexpansion and regional turbulence. Well, maybe we could go into those two in, in, in a bit more um, detail. I mean, one of the interesting things about the overexpansion is that um, whilst the EU is very, very uh, diverse in all across all the dimensions you talked about one of the advantages it has though is that heterogeneity because actually by and large most member states don't care very much about most of the issues on the european agenda which is which means that particularly on foreign policy for example so long as um 
the EU seems to be delivering in an area which is a very high salience to you, you're willing to go along with everybody else in all of the areas that you care very little about. And there are only sort of less than half a dozen countries that have uh, a very wide definition of their national interests, which includes the full gamut of relationships which Europe has with the rest of the world. So therefore, do you not see that heterogeneity as something which can allow you to make the sort of grand bargains which have been uh, there throughout the European Union in, it, in its past? We'll help you with Russia and Ukraine if you uh, help us uh, deal with the refugees that are coming from, from southern Europe, I mean, in the long term, obviously. Because unity is not something which is there at the beginning of the process with heterogeneity. It's something which has to come at the end as a result of, uh, of politics. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a very optimistic spin on it. Uh, I think the problem is that when you get beyond a certain size, in a sense, the transaction costs become enormous. So, so in theory, yes, if you have a small group of people or a small group of countries who have some differences, some different interests, they, you can play those sort of trade-offs. You know, I'll help you with your problem if you help me with mine. We have slightly different asset portfolios, and that that's good. We can... Uh, be stronger together by pooling our, our various capabilities. But I'd argue that the EU now has gotten to the point that it's it become so cumbersome that whenever any serious problem arises, it takes forever to devise a solution. It takes forever to achieve any kind of uh, genuine consensus. And what you see accompanying that, of course, is a declining public support for the EU in general. Public opinion polls consistently saying you know, that the EU doesn't represent us, doesn't understand the needs of its, uh, of its members. So what has been an elite project, but that also had a lot of, I think, popular support in the 50s and 60s, the sort of great success years of, of the project, has started to lose popular support. And of course, so we've seen the emergence of Eurosceptic parties and more xenophobic parties uh, as well. Um, and f finally, and this is a thing we haven't talked about yet, you know, I think you see this in the, the very slow motion response to the Euro crisis, where working within Europe right, just takes forever um, and that that's an, an obstacle imposed now by the size that the union has reached. I, I, I don't want to minimize any of those huge problems that you talked about, but I think on foreign policy issues, for example, if you look at things in a historical uh, perspective, the EU is actually much better able to come to uh, consensus around very difficult issues now than it was in the past. If I remember the time of Bosnia and the, the Balkan Wars, where the EU was utterly incapable of, of, of doing anything about killing fields on its borders, the time of the Iraq War, where it was completely paralysed by what happened. If you look at the last few years, the EU came together with... Uh, a lot of ease around uh, uh, quite a strong policy on Iran, which has actually not just been a European policy. They managed to get the US and then Russia and China and other countries on board uh, behind their diplomatic approach uh, to dealing with, with Iran. On uh, Russia and Ukraine, uh, what struck me is, is how... Uh, the EU managed to overcome these kind of enormous divisions in history and geography in its definition of its interests. Because 10 years ago, it was almost impossible even to talk about Russia. There was such a deep gulf between these different countries. But the EU has come together behind 
some of the most punishing sanctions that actually hurt a lot of its member states. And they've it stayed kind of uh, fairly uh, united behind an approach that most people I don't think would have ever imagined being possible uh, a couple of years ago. And even on the the the, um, the question of the the refugee crisis, uh, that is obviously something which reaches much more deeply into the national politics of every member state. There's no issue more. Uh, neuralgic than the control of the borders and immigration in any country in the world um, and so it has obviously been extremely problematic and we're just at the beginning of the of the, of the process but uh, again I, it's kind of striking that there has been a real process of convergence and and um, uh, you know, there had to be some strong arming. There are, there will, there is some broken crockery, and there there will be political backlashes in some countries. That, the way that that quotas were enforced, but it, it's not been as bad as, uh, say, the the early discussions about the 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 euro crisis were, um, and uh, that kind of slow, cumbersome uh, process you know, eventually could end up destroying the European Union because polities can just degrade and become too kind of brittle. But until that happens, it can also give them a sort of resilience, the ability to just carry on uh, going um, and to, to, to handle events that come and go in the rest of the world and to, but to keep standing. Um, well, that again, I think we're, we're sort of looking at the same picture, yeah. and, and I'm seeing the glass as half empty, and you're seeing it as, as, as half full. I mean, one of the things that concerns me, and, and I should say this, say that I'm not an opponent of the EU, and I'm not a fan of Brexit or anything like that. I actually think the achievements of the European Union are extraordinary over the last 50 years. It's uh, particularly if you compare them to Europe's history over the previous, you know, three or four hundred years. Um, what worries me is the accumulation of a set of problems. Um, all of them uh, difficult, all of them uh, defying ready solution. And as you keep adding additional straws to the camel's back, you know, what's the one that will finally uh, tip things? So, so I would have said, you know, the euro crisis, you know, creating the euro was, was an extraordinary mistake. Uh, it's on a par with the American invasion of Iraq, right? Just how could they have been so foolish? People at the time warned that the institutional framework for a successful euro were not there. Uh, it was a political act uh, that made little sense. And the problem now is, first of all, uh, that we don't know if the euro crisis will ultimately be solved, if the Greek bailout is going to work this time around. So this may come back to haunt Europe again. Um, but second, the amount of time that's been taken up. Uh, every hour that's been spent trying to address the euro crisis is an hour that you couldn't spend thinking about Ukraine, an hour you couldn't spend thinking about what to do about the Middle East or any number of other problems as well. And I don't think that's going away. Then you add to that what's happened with you know, regional turbulence, the refugee crisis, at at some point, you do have to wonder, is there's just going to be sort of too much strain placed on this? And the thing that I think would worry me most if I were in Europe is to what extent are all of these things going to suddenly make the sort of xenophobic right-wing parties and Eurosceptic parties more popular than they have been in the past? Right? There's always been a certain amount of that lurking around the fringes in the, certainly the last 20 years or so, but none of these parties have ever been 
popular enough to gain power in a major European country. I don't think you can rule out at this point the possibility that uh, Marine Le Pen uh, gains power in France, and that has, at least in the short term, some really worrying implications for the European project, uh, European project uh, more broadly. Um, so it's to me the concern is the accumulation of strains. And where the remedy might be, well, what we need is more Europe, you know, ever greater union. That might be the remedy, but it's not clear to me that that's the remedy we're going to get. That's definitely true. In fact, what we're what we're getting is maybe uh, more Europe, but through the prism of, of more Germany <laughs> right. and German leadership. And that's one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about. One of my favorite uh, books that you've written was uh, the book about taming American power, where you talk about all the different strategies that other countries around the world have used, were used during the unipolar moment to try and constrain um, uh, America. We're now in a unipolar moment in, in Europe to an extent, and Germany is playing a completely different role from that that it played before. To what extent do you think that's sustainable? Maybe, you know, you, if we take your framework of analysis, um, how do you think that uh, the rest of the EU over time is going to, is going to deal with, with, uh, uh, with, with German power? Can you maybe lay out, because you had a wonderful typology <laughs> yeah. of Taming American Power, but maybe go through some <laughs> of the different tactics that, that other countries might use. Well, I mean, uh, in the, the more... The framework would be sort of, you know, other things states can do. They can, uh, they can balance. They can, other European states can try and get together to try and keep Germany from exercising uh, too much influence. Some other states will try to, you know, jump on the German bandwagon and align themselves more closely with Germany. But the really, the real challenge is actually for Germany itself. And this has been true, you know, ever since the economic miracle of the 1950s when Germany began to reestablish itself. It goes back to, you know, what A.G.P. Taylor called, you know, the, the, pro the struggle for mastery in Europe. The problem is, what do you do with German power? Yeah. Right? A problem that ever since German unification has been, been out there. And Germany has tried several solutions to this problem over the last 150 years. And the one they've pursued over the last 40 or 50 has been by far the most successful, which is to embed German power in an institutional framework embodied in the EU, uh, being very committed to norms, very committed to institutions, very committed to democracy. And so you see now, I, I mean, I, I, I don't envy the Germans because in a sense, on the one hand, others are calling for German leadership, but as soon as Germany begins to exercise active leadership, particularly in the security realm, Everyone immediately gets incredibly nervous and is worried about what this what this means. So for Germany to walk this sort of fine line, right, I said at a conference in Brussels two days ago that you know Germany doesn't do power politics, right? A little bit in the financial realm, yes, but even there, it's always embedded in a sort of framework of you know we're going to operate with others. You know, it doesn't do security politics in the way that most of us uh, would think about it as well. So Germany is not going to be able to independently lead Europe until it has a more uh, established security capacity and a willingness to use it. And I don't see anyone in Germany wanting to pursue that. I'm not even sure it would be a good idea if they did. Actually, it is 
already starting to change. I mean, on, on mm. Russia, it's Angela Merkel, not President Obama or other people who are de- who's dealing with Putin. And she both handled the European politics, got everyone behind some uh, really tough sanctions, which people didn't expect to do, but also um, has been... Uh, f- has filled the sort of vacuum that existed with with uh, the US basically wanting to to uh, have as little to do with um, the Ukraine crisis as possible. But then on the refugees thing, I mean that's the other thing where, where uh, Angela Merkel forced through the idea of of mandatory quotas uh, against uh, you know a, a lot of resistance in in some member states. And obviously on the Euro, uh, Germany has been setting the pace for all of the discussions. So what started as economic leadership is kind of bleeding into other areas. And you're seeing Germany playing a very different kind of relationship um, with China, uh, a country with whom it it obviously has a very strong economic relationship. Almost half of EU trade with China is German trade. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a sort of gradual expansion of... German definitions of interest, and uh, we're seeing Germany playing a more active role, including in areas which go way beyond the sort of economic comfort zone which they're in in the past. I think that's true, and and I've sort of been predicting this for a while, and yeah. and now where I think we're finally seeing it come to fruition. But you still see, I think, a, a great reluctance in Germany to to use more traditional language of national interest yeah. and. And they're sort of moving in that direction, but very gingerly, and that's understandable, both given the, the deep history of German relations with its neighbors, but also to some degree the inherited experience of the post-war period, where, you know, as I said, you know, sort of embedding itself within Europe, but also having something of a junior partner relationship with the United States, yeah. I mean, when the United States was very actively engaged in European politics and and want, wanted to make sure that its its allies, uh, you know, sort of followed Washington's tune. Now, even in that period, you did have, you know, Willy Brandt and Ostpolitik. So there was a, a, partly because of Germany's geographic position and the implications of the division of Germany, Germany had some interests that were at odds with the United States and were able to express them, but always done uh, somewhat gingerly. I think the, the other interesting question to ask is what happens if, if and when, the German powerhouse uh, stumbles. So part of what's made this happen in the last decade is that unlike the rest of Europe or most of the rest of Europe, the German economy has actually done pretty well. And so it's been in a position to uh, take the lead on the euro crisis, and it's clearly got leverage over a number of its neighbors through its economic relations and others. That condition will not last forever. At some point, the German economy will, in fact, it already has begun to slow. But at some point, like all economies, they'll have a rough patch. And what happens to sort of German, quote, leadership in the EU at a moment where its economy is suddenly not very robust? And that, of course, then factors into domestic politics. And suddenly there are Germans who want to be even tougher on those who they think are not you know, sort of living up to their agreements or not willing to subsidize anyone else. And I don't I don't know when that's going to happen. I hope it's not soon. So you think that when that happens, that's when you'll see the sort of back... Because at the moment, it's mainly been bandwagoning that we've seen, um, if you go back to your kind of mm. uh, different areas. But you had various other tactics that people use, not just balancing, but blackmailing, 
balking, in other words, kind of ignoring or refusing demands and attacking American legitimacy. I mean, all of those things, we've seen elements of them in, in the behavior of others. Do you think that? No, no, that, that, no, I think I think that's right. And you, you see, I mean, obviously balking. I mean, Greece is a perfect example of trying to say no for as long as possible to see if it can get a deal. Um, and to some degree, a little bit of blackmail, right? If, if you don't bail us out, we'll collapse and that won't be very good for your monetary project here. Yeah. Right. So there's some so even very weak and very vulnerable states often have a little bit of leverage. And we've seen some of that uh, operate. Can we maybe end by thinking about what this picture in Europe means? So um, of a, you think the, the I, mean, I don't think you necessarily saying that Europe's going to collapse, but yeah. just that it's going to drift. And, and yeah. I mean, there, 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 of, I think there are three big options yeah. here. Right. One is that that you actually do. Uh, necessity forces the more Europe, ever greater union, yeah. uh, that these accumulated crises, you know, eventually get uh, some real leadership and we move, we take yeah. the next step forward. I don't see anyone in the European environment now who's in a position to push that or even has the vision to do that. So that's one option. That's sort of the more optimistic case. The most likely option, I think, is sort of status quo muddle through. You know, Band-Aids keep getting put on the various problems. Uh, the EU doesn't collapse. Um, there continues to be strains. But it does mean that Europe remains sort of internally preoccupied with trying to manage its own problems. It doesn't carry much weight in the rest of the world because it simply can't. In that sense, its global influence de declines someone. The third and most worrisome option uh, is a sort of gradual erosion that things go worse uh, you know that maybe there is a grexit which then damages the euro maybe britain decides to leave which suddenly makes this ever greater union idea look bankrupt maybe le pen or someone like her gains power in other places and really wants to put full stop to this european experiment and I don't think, but just to be clear, that's a good thing. It's not good for Europe and it's not yeah. good for the United States yeah. either. Um, but I don't think you can entirely rule that out. So because if you look beyond Europe, I mean, basically, because a lot of the trends you're talking about for Europeans are obviously equally true for the U.S., not going to have, uh, you know, not got the most cohesive or, or, or direction or uh, uh, federal political system mm -hmm. um there's populism you know you might have donald trump as the next president looking less likely now than a few i'll, weeks I'll ago. take that bet by the but, uh, way I don't, <laughs> I don't think we're going to have donald trump as our next president um but what how does what does that mean for the west um uh if we both got this slightly uh depressing outlook on the on the european side but an america that's at, at least a bit tamed compared to where it was a few years ago in its uh, global ambitions and where its domestic politics is a bit kind of choppier and, and more kind of polarised and, and messier as well. Well, at the risk of sounding overly, you know, jingoistic or over, overly pro-American, I actually think the American position is not bad. American economy is doing reasonably well. We have a sort of slightly crazy politics uh, now, but in part because we can afford to. Uh, the United States is extraordinarily secure, we're demographically in much better shape than Europe is in. Population is younger. It's continuing to grow. We're not going to face the same burdens of dealing with an elderly population that countries like Germany, for example, unless there's a much larger amount of immigration than anybody is talking about uh, uh, right now, are, are, are going to face. So if you take a sort of 10 or 20 year perspective, the United States, barring self-inflicted wounds, is, uh, is going to be fine. Um, Europe 
I think even without additional self-inflicted wounds like the euro, is going to face a number of really important political challenges. The headwinds that Europe has to contend with are, are much greater than the ones that the United States has to contend with. And I'll just add one more provocative point. Europe is probably going to have to deal with most of these mostly on its own because America's strategic attention is going to be directed mostly to Asia and to some lingering extent uh, in the Middle East. We're not going to become enemies. TTIP may eventually pass. We're going to remain closely engaged uh, you know, economically. But the amount of attention that Europe gets from American policymakers, I think, is going to diminish just because of other distractions and other commitments elsewhere. Great. Well, um that's a really interesting set of views on, on both where Europe's going to go, where America's going to go. I'm sure some of our listeners will, uh, will be sitting up and, and taking notice and maybe uh, you can write in if you disagree with, uh, with any of the, the points that, that Steve has, has made. So that brings uh, this podcast to an end um, with many thanks from Steve Wall and Mark Leonard here in London. The researcher of our podcast is Ulrike Franke. Our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.